You are listening to 3CR podcast of Encyclopedia. Encyclopedia is a broadcast live every Sunday from 2 p.m. For more information, head to 3cr.org.au. Good afternoon and welcome to another episode of Encyclopedia on Melbourne's 3CR. You just heard from Freedom of Species and you can find out everything about them at the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au. Follow the links to the program page and find them on social media. Subscribe to the podcast, etc, etc. Do the same for us while you're there. On uh, this afternoon's program, two panels for you again. We are doing another panel-filled show. Uh, I know last week some of the audio might have been a bit hard to hear. I was listening to it uh, and it was um, just a bit hard to hear. We just need to make sure those audio recorders are plugged into things. Uh, So I've I've made sure that the audio is uh, of much higher quality this week. Uh, It's from the Australian Psychedelic Society's Sydney chapter uh, where uh, they've been holding a few events. Um, Two talks, Changa to Change, Self to Society with uh, Jeff Baker who is the Sydney chapter head of the Australian Psychedelic Society and Dr Vince Polito, uh, Experiences of Microdicing Psychedelics and Observational Study and that's um, him reporting on a study that he did into microdosing LSD uh, and that was for Bicycle Day earlier this year, April 19th this year. Uh, so those two talks coming up are presented to you by the Australian Psychedelic Society's Sydney chapter and thank you to uh, the Sydney chapter for the audio uh, and they're recorded at um, uh, Marrickville uh, Mothership Studio Studios in Marrickville, and we're going to start now with Dr. Vince Polito uh, talking to us a little bit about how he got into this line of research. I've been interested in psychedelic research for quite a long time. I've been kind of watching the emergence of this field that's getting some legs once again, and I've been curious about that sort of thing. But this is definitely the first research on psychedelics I've done. Um, in my kind of research career, I've definitely been interested in. I guess you could say, more unusual topics. I did my PhD in hypnosis, and a lot of my work is really looking at how self-representation, motor control, these kinds of things change in different altered states of consciousness. So I've kind of, I guess, taken an approach of finding topics that I think are curious and interesting, but then really trying to approach them from a very solid and rigorous perspective perspective from within cognitive science. So I work in a cognitive science department, which is great. It's a very interdisciplinary kind of field. Um, and I've, I've really taken that same approach with this microdosing study that I'm going to talk to you about here, trying to see like what is the most careful and rigorous way we can look at something that's actually quite difficult to study given the legal and bureaucratic kind of environment. So I guess to launch into it, I assume in this crowd most people are pretty familiar with the idea of microdosing. It's taking um, a really small dose of a psychedelic substance. People microdose in different ways. There's not one single way that people do it, but often people will take a substance every three or four days. If you read information online about microdosing, the idea behind that is that supposedly you microdose on one day and then there's a residual effect for a couple of days afterwards and then you might microdose again on the third or fourth day. Again, people follow different sorts of regimes. Um, what's really interesting about microdosing is that there's claims of significant psychological benefit. Um, if you read media stories or reports online, people talk about microdosing have, having many different effects, from improving mental health to improving creativity, general well-being. Um, it's, it's described in pretty glowing terms in most of the material that you find about it. 
Um, and I guess just to be a bit more specific about what we really mean when we talk about microdosing, the doses are extremely small. It's typically one-tenth to one-twentieth of what we'd consider a recreational dose. So it's at a dose where it's described usually as sub-threshold, meaning that you don't notice any immediate effects from having taken this substance. Now, the history of microdosing is quite interesting. It really became a popular phenomenon after the publication of this book in 2011 by um, James Fadiman. He is definitely the person who has popularised and kind of spearheaded the modern interest in microdosing. This book was mentioned by Tom in the, the last talk. It is a really interesting book um, just as a general kind of guide to um, psychedelics in the modern world, even apart from the microdosing section. So I'd, I would certainly recommend the book. It is what kick-started the, I guess, microdosing revolution and interest. Um, and that was, I guess, taken to the next level by this Rolling Stone report that came out in 2015 that was where microdosing really first made it into the, the mass media. Now, interestingly, there's been another book published um, quite recently, just in the last couple of months, which is this book here by Torsten Passi, which is called The um, Science of Microdosing Psychedelics. And this book is great. It's got all sorts of overviews of studies that were done in the 60s that could be considered microdosing. Some of them are a bit higher doses than usually what we talk about microdosing, but I discovered this after I'd published my paper, and there was all sorts of things in there that I hadn't been aware of and that aren't typically in the sort of public domain of information about microdosing. So this is a, a goldmine if you're interested in kind of the, the history of the practice. Nevertheless, we get to about 2015. Microdosing is really blowing up. There, were this, there was this first Rolling Stone article, but there's been literally tens of thousands of articles about microdosing since then with all sorts of headlines, some really dubious-sounding things and some quite quite good journalism reporting on the phenomenon. But, um, yeah, it, it, it really kind of took off. This graph, the axes haven't come up for some reason, but this is essentially showing um, the Google trend search for the phrase microdosing. Um, the time period, just to give you an idea, this is around kind of like 2012, 2013 around here. This is where the Rolling Stone article was published. And this was a book that was published in early January 2017 by Alec Waldman, all about microdosing, and um, that also led to a big spike. The purple section down the bottom, that was the period of time in which I collected data for my study. So I was quite lucky to kind of um, get this all going just at this period here where microdosing was, was tr starting to explode in, in popularity. Now, Tom kind of touched on a point that, and also some of the questions of this idea of the way that people think about psychedelics is, seems to be changing somewhat. And that's particularly true of microdosing. There's a great quote here from Hamilton Morris who said, I would never expected that the way to get everybody interested in psychedelics was to make them not psychedelic. <laughs> So, some extra context for this kind of idea is this, probably my favourite tweet on microdosing. Drugs in the 60s, this will free your mind. Drugs now, by doing small amounts of LSD, I maximise productivity generating capital for my boss. So this, is, this is really getting at this idea of psych um, the, the role of psychedelics in society changing somewhat. I think historically you could sort of think of psychedelics or people who are into psychedelics in one of three ways. There's been people who are very interested in the medical or psycho psychotherapeutic potential of psychedelics. That might be an organisation like MAPS, for example. 
there's certainly been people who have been very interested in psychedelics from maybe a spiritual perspective. So lots of traditional uses of psychedelics definitely fall under that banner. And then there's modern sort of emergences of that. You could even say maybe a character like Timothy Leary or someone like that was on a kind of um, spiritual psychedelic trip. And then the third angle, I think, if you look at the history of psychedelics, is seeing psychedelics as something that's related to um, creativity or trickery or mischief. Okay, And so that's, I think, been our dominant sort of I'm obviously generalizing, but our dominant sort of lenses in which you can understand psychedelics. And it seems like there is something that is changing now that not everyone is comfortable about. As um, microdosing and psychedelics in general become more popular, there is certainly a concern about psychedelics being commodified. And um, um, David Nichols, who's talking at the next one of these events, has some excellent critiques of that that I think are really important. So I'd certainly encourage you to come and see him next time if you're interested in these kinds of sociological issues. Okay, so with that kind of background, I guess what I'm trying to establish is just that there has been this sudden interest in this new way of taking psychedelics. Um, And me being a cognitive scientist, kind of interested in this area, thought this was a really interesting uh, scientific problem. Essentially, the scientific question about microdosing, from my perspective, was, is this real? Because we've got some really good reasons to think that It could be real, but we've also got some very good reasons to think, well, maybe this is something like a placebo effect. So to sort of tally up this a little bit, on the placebo side of things, we have this really strong narrative of benefits in media and online discussion. If you try and find information about microdosing, what you're going to discover is going to be almost exclusively glowing positive reports. So that certainly sets up conditions in an environment that's rich for people to have these kinds of expectations that might drive a placebo effect. There's improbable reports of effective doses. So people are taking doses that are so small that it seems intuitively unlikely that they could be having such dramatic changes in consciousness. Okay, so that's the second sort of reason. The third reason to be a bit sceptical is that with the phenomenon of microdosing, there's a strong pressure to justify sunk costs. And what I mean by that is, for most people, if, if, you, if someone reads about microdosing, becomes curious, wants to go and do it, it's not usually easy for them to do that. They have to find somewhere that they can get the substance, which might be difficult for them. Once they've got the substance, they need to go to quite a bit of effort to work out the dosage, you know, maybe cut up a paper trip into very small little pieces or do some kind of volumetric dosing with with liquid substances. So there's a lot of effort that goes into it, which means that if someone has done that, they're really primed to get something out of that. It's quite difficult for someone to be detached and say, oh, actually, maybe this isn't doing very much at all. Okay, so, that, so there really are, I think, genuinely some reasons to be a bit cautious and sceptical about whether this thing is real. On the other side, we do have some reasons to think that this could be real and it could work. The main one is that there, are compelling ev- there is really compelling evidence from research with high-dose psychedelics. Usually at this point of the talk, I go into that quite a bit, but I assume that this crowd is pretty much on top of that. Psychedelics are being used for you know, treating anxiety, depression, addictions, a whole, whole range of positive evidence. Um, There's also really plausible mechanisms of action. Um, We know more about the way that psychedelics are working, that it's changing the default mode network, that um, serotonergic psychedelics have this long-term binding to receptor sites, and I think we're probably going to hear more about this from Dean afterwards. So there certainly is possible reasons why this could work. So really, 
I think, a, a great situation for a study to try and work it out. And that's what I tried to do. I did a couple of studies, actually. The first one, and this is the main study, was looking at the short and long-term effects of microdosing. I mentioned that it's very difficult to, to do scientific research in this area because you can't give substances to people. There's a lot of bureaucratic hurdles. I was a little bit um, apprehensive about even proposing the study to our ethics committee, but I did, and it went through relatively okay. Um, <laughs> And I, I did get permission to do it. So the way we set up our design to try and look at this carefully was to have these two parts of the study. The, the I guess, main source of information we had was a comparison at baseline and then after six weeks of microdosing on a range of eight different scales. So I had these eight scales looking at things that people talk about when they describe microdosing online. So I had scales related to well-being, creativity, mindfulness, mood, personality, mystical experiences, mind-wandering and absorption. And all of these were very well-validated psychometric measures that have you know, a, quite a good research history behind them. I was trying to get the best tools that I could for investigating this. And then I also had each day, people would get an anonymous email where they just had to give seven super quick ratings of how they felt on, a, on some much simpler kinds of variables. So that was looking at like how connected they were, how happy they felt that day, how productive, etc. And I chose to do it for six weeks or 42 days because that would allow approximately 10 cycles of someone microdosing every four days, which is what I thought a lot of people would be doing. So that's the basic design. Uh, I'll go through this next part really quickly, just to sort of demonstrate the response that we got. We got pretty good response. I didn't try and advertise or, um, you know, uh, recruit too widely for this. I just posted a notice on a couple of forums, and then we had over a thousand people come and start the study. Um, Two hundred ninety-eight actually, um, you know, answered a few questions. Two hundred fifty-one of them finished. 150, after finishing that initial survey, sent at least one daily report. 104 people sent reports of actually microdosing. 73 came back and completed the big measure at the end. And of those 73, 65 of them were people who had actually dosed during some time. So this is, um, it's still actually the only longitudinal microdosing study out there where people have been tracked over a period of time. Um, over the period of the study, we had over 3,000 reports sent in and 517 of those were of microdosing days. We got quite a lot of data. Um, most of the participants were male. The age group was mainly 26 to 35 and skewed older than maybe you would expect for research on psychedelics. The vast majority um, had some kind of tertiary education and almost everyone was employed in some capacity, either you know, working or, or as a student. So this paints a picture of relatively functioning members of society, I guess you could say. Okay, so into the results. This, this, is, uh, this is showing how often people microdosed. So um, on the, the, the x-axis is the, how many times they microdosed over the period of the study. And this is the gap between dosing. So people actually microdosed less often than the kind of popular culture image of microdosing. So the, the mean lag, the mean gap between doses was almost seven days. So people are doing it about once a week on average. Obviously, you know, we've got quite a bit of variance. People doing it much more often and people doing it much less often as well. What did people microdose with? Quite a range of things. I was stunned. 
Um, there, were, there were some research chemicals I hadn't heard of that people were microdosing with. Now, in the main analysis that I wrote up in the paper, I only concentrated on the serotonergic psychedelics, so mainly just the LSD, psilocybin, um, and, and a few other um, additional participants. But I just thought it was interesting to kind of show some of the other groups of substances that people were out there um, microdosing with. Okay, so here's our main results. I'll show you first the daily ratings. So this was, again, where they get that email each day. They had to make a simple rating of uh, each of these variables, how they felt on that day. And this is the results that has come up really badly. But um, the gist of what you can see here is each point is... So let's just look at contemplative because it's kind of in the middle. This blurry base here is the average rating of how contemplative people felt on days when they didn't dose. This is the dosing day, big boost there, and then this is the two days after dosing. And so what the pattern is pretty much the same for all of them, is that there is this general positive boost on the dosing day, but there's not too much evidence that those effects um, last for the following days, which is interesting considering the way microdosing is talked about. The only exceptions for that were that two days after dosing, there was a little bit of a rebound on how focused people felt and also how productive people felt. So that maybe does fit into this idea of microdosing being a tool that can make you, you know, concentrate more in the context of work, which is what a lot of microdosing articles do talk about. Okay, the main data set was really, though, these long-term measures. And so these were the specific scales that I used for those different dimensions. I won't go into too much detail about it, but I'll just show you the, the general pattern of results. These are very number-filled and academic, so I'll, I'll just hone in on, on the main messages. These first three were, the, were some of the things that are most commonly talked about when you read about microdosing. Um, general feelings of well-being, creativity, mindfulness... We found no evidence of any change in any of those things. These are all relatively flat lines. Um, um, so, yeah, that was kind of what I thought might change, but it did not change. This next one is interesting. This was um, the depression, anxiety, stress scale, a very well-validated measure of mental health or mood. And we did find significant drops in depression and stress. Um, these were some of the largest findings we found. Um, and we had to, one of the conditions of our ethics committee was that we had to be very careful to recruit people that didn't have any mental illness or history of mental illness. So supposedly this is a relatively well sampled to start with, but even then we found these reductions in these things. So I think that's quite interesting. This is personality measures. These are like what are called the big five personality traits. Personalities usually considered something that's very stable, that doesn't change easily. There is some evidence with high-dose psychedelics that there can be an increase in trait openness. People, people can change in that way. We didn't find that. And in fact, the only change we found related to, to personality was a small increase in neuroticism. And so that's certainly surprising. That's quite, um, you know, that goes against a lot of what the big dose psychedelic research shows and I think it's worth just thinking a little bit about what that could mean. Neuroticism is really about someone having more intense emotional experiences and that certainly can be negative experiences but it doesn't exclusively have to be. So one possibility is that microdosing made people more aware of emotions that were already there. I don't know if it necessarily made people more neurotic in that a negative kind of sense but certainly this is something that we're following up and I think is a curious finding to, to get to the bottom of. 
Okay, here's another few interesting ones. So this first one, mystical experience, we didn't see any change there. And that's not really surprising, although there is certainly really good research showing that high-dose psychedelics can lead to mystical experiences. With doses as small as microdosing, it would be pretty amazing if people were having those kinds of, those kinds of um, things happen. We found a reduction in mind-wandering. So that's, that's uh, a change in intention, I guess, and less unwanted thoughts. And we found an increase in absorption. And this is, uh, to me, the most intriguing finding of the whole study. Absorption is like uh, strong involvement with imaginative kind of experiences. Was, I think it's quite similar to what Tom was describing when he was talking about psychedelics having this meaning-enhancing kind of effect. People who are... Uh, high absorption events can be where someone's like deeply connected to art or nature or something like that. And so we found quite a big boost in absorption um, in this study. So that's pretty much it for the, the, the study one findings. We found this general positive boost on dosing days, not much evidence for those immediate effects to, to persist. But then on these more complicated long-term changes, we did find benefits for mental health, reduced mind-wandering, increased absorption and increased neuroticism. Interestingly, we failed to confirm some of the stereotypical claims, so we didn't find changes on some of the things that people most expected. So I want to race through a follow-up study we did, which was to really hone in on these expectations and say, OK, look, we've, we found these things, but we haven't really determined whether this is because of the microdosing or because of placebo. So the way that we tried to um, get some clarity on that was... We got 263 new participants, um, just in a one-off study, we asked them to imagine microdosing for six weeks, and we got them to predict what changes would occur based on the variables from study one. So people made a prediction for each variable, and they also indicated their confidence in that prediction. Now from that, we were able to rank the things that people most expected would change. And so it kind of looked like this. These were all the variables from study one. These were sort of how we phrased it in the expectation study. And then we were able to calculate like a weighted expectation based on their prediction and their confidence. And so this is the rank, rank order of what thing people most expected to change. So people most expected creativity, mindfulness, well-being, openness, that kind of thing. Now, if we compare that to the actual rank of effects in study one, there's not much of a match-up. And we're actually we're able to do um, a, a rank order correlation to test if there, these two... Um, lists were associated and they weren't. So this is showing that people's expectations were not related to the actual set of findings that we had in study one. So the basic message there is that this doesn't, this doesn't support an expectancy bias interpretation of study one and it doesn't seem like the findings can be entirely explained by placebo. To just try and explain that a bit more, for example, if we had found a really big increase in creativity, then it would be very reasonable to say, well, that's just what people expected was going to happen. That's why you got that. But we didn't get that. The things that changed, like absorption, were not what people were expecting. So it's much harder to say, well, those results are just because of people's expectations. That's, that's kind of the bottom line. So that is pretty much it. I guess the take-home message from our work was that microdoses in this sample did report these positive effects. Um, but the positive effects that were found were definitely more subtle than typical media or online narratives of microdosing. Um, this is really just repeating the, what I've already said, so I'll skip over. The very final thing I just wanted to show was this came out, this study came out in February this year, so it was a very long and tedious review process, but we finally got it out. And I just wanted to demonstrate that there's actually been in the last few months quite a lot of microdosing research. So this is from late last year. This was an interview study looking at people's experiences. There's been a couple of studies here looking at um, cross-sectional research on microdosing where they've just um, 
given a whole bunch of scales to people who microdose and said, what changes have you reported? So there's a nice one there. This one's just come out by James Fadiman with his really large database of people. Um, there's a study looking at people's YouTube videos of microdosing and seeing what you can discover from it there. So some quite cre creative approaches to looking at it. Um, there's been a couple of studies that are more experimental. So in the Netherlands, uh, psilocybin-containing truffles are legal. So in this study here, the researchers went along to an uh, event of the Dutch Psychedelic Society where everyone took microdoses of truffles and they found that that increased people's creativity. Now, interesting result, but again, it's a bit, everyone there knew they'd taken the microdose, so it's a little bit hard to disentangle placebo effect in these studies. Another similar study here in, um, based in the Netherlands looking at, at similar kind of stuff. And then finally, there has been a real placebo-controlled study of microdosing. These people weren't really interested in the beneficial effects of microdosing. They were looking at it much more from a cognitive science perspective, and they found that um, microdosing did lead to changes in time perception. So that was quite an interesting finding. Um, and people are even starting to publish papers um, coming up with hypotheses about how microdosing might work. This study here is proposing that microdosing changes our body's regulation of sleep and that that's what affects the, the benefits people have. I have no idea if that's true, but um, I just thought it was interesting to, to show that there is all this research coming out. Not so much this one, but the, the rest of them are all broadly consistent with our findings. There's some differences on creativity. We didn't find any changes there. A couple of these have, but the main things of changes in attention, changes in um, mental health and mood is now pretty well supported. And I think I'll leave it there. Thanks a lot for your attention. That's my paper. <laughs>
find our own and we'll share that there as well. Uh, this second talk also from the Australian Psychedelic Society uh, Sydney chapter is Changa to Change, Self to Society, and it comes uh, was presented by the Sydney chapter head, uh, Jeff Baker, at Mothership Studios on Sunday the 19th of May this year. So, what is Changa, for those you don't know? Um, it's essentially a smoking mixture containing the same or similar ingredients as ayahuasca. In most cases, this is, this is uh, made from crystal DMT extracted from acacias or mimosa, which is then dissolved and soaked onto herbs that contain a monoamine oxidase inhibitor, such as Banisteria alpsis carpi, the ayahuasca vine, uh, Syrian rue, or even passion flower. In the brain, these harmless alkaloids from the MAOI herbs directly inhibit the enzyme that would normally very rapidly metabolize DMT. And this gives us a very unique pharmacological synergy between the tryptamine alkaloids and the harmless alkaloids. Uh, ratios of DMT to harmless are key to the intensity and duration of the Changer experience uh, and can vary from only a little bit of DMT to over 50%. Chang is preferred by a lot of people. Uh, gives a longer duration to the DMT experience, anywhere from say 10 to 40 minutes. Uh, many describe it as softer, gentler, and the peak breakthrough states that people speak of can be built up to gradually because of the presence of the harmless alkaloids. So the Changa experience can be made to last as long as you like, uh, simply by smoking gradually and slowly and staying in the space longer. Um, this can also reveal the, the very clear audible guidance of the ayahuasca vine present in the mix through a, a voice or, or teachings. Uh, Chang is a convenient form of visiting the ayahuasca space or, or staying in tune with teachings from the vine that you may have gotten ceremonies drinking the brew. And given the strictures of diet, fasting and the expense and travel often involved with ayahuasca ceremonies becomes perfect for our modern society. So, some have called Chang'e the evolution of ayahuasca. Uh, the smoking of DMT and even more so Chang'e is an exclusively modern and largely western practice. Um, and a key article entitled The Evolution of Ayahuasca states that Chang'e is quite possibly one of the most amazing innovations in the technology of the sacred in our lifetime. Author and researcher Graham St. John has examined Chang'e as a cultural phenomenon and notes the significance of the DIY nature of Chang'e, especially so the context of its development through sites like the DMT Nexus and other underground research communities. In researching the religious dimensions of DMT, Des Tramachi showed how the DIY ethos of the entheogenic movement has fostered the idea of psychonauts as self-sufficient shamans, who no longer need the assistance of a guide or supplier, but perform acts of self-shamanizing. Des also points to the grassroots person-to-person -person sociality of the entheogenic community and how it organically grows by sharing visions as well as technical knowledge negotiating consensus on important issues of safety and sanity, and bound together through shared, intense experience. However, artist Daniel Morante notes that calling Chang'e an evolution of ayahuasca fails to acknowledge that Chang'e and ayahuasca are two very different cultural phenomena that arose and continue to arise in separate cultural contexts with different social and historical frameworks. In his thorough air experimentation with various ayahuasca analogues and admixtures, Jonathan Ott describes the ayahuasca effect, and this refers to any combination of DMT and MAOIs. Uh, some relate this to what provides the inner voice phenomenon that seems to be present in Chang'e and ayahuasca. Because Chang'e is a recent... Where do we go? Wait. 
Okay, sorry, lost my slides there. Let's stay there. Um, because Chango is a recent Western phenomenon, it really has no traditional ritual or customs. The development of self-styled rituals and ceremonial settings for smoking also reveals the adaptive and creative nature of psychonauts and their underground psychedelic networks. Graham St. John also pointed out the tensions between traditionalists and innovative adapters with a confluence of effects inherited from both the ayahuasca drink and smoked DMT. Chang'e is regarded as a hybrid pharmonostic phenomena. Its emergence then poses a challenge to advocates of either ayahuasca or DMT alone. So while Chang'e is indeed a relative of the two, it has forged a tradition of its own, and the trouble with calling it smokable ayahuasca lies in it really neither being DMT or ayahuasca. And given the absence of Shikruna or Chalaponga, which are the traditional DMT admixtures in South American ayahuasca, this could well be one point of contention. The insights we get from the way ayahuasca has entered the Western psyche can also be used to look at the emergence of Chang'e as an evolutionary strategy of the vine uh, for its survival, its growth, its development, and global healing. It's no surprise then the claim is made that Chang'e has changed, developed into something new and unique in its own right. Uh, Graham St. John also notes that Chang'e is one, but one among an assemblage of spiritual technologies or spirotechnics championed by expressive expatriates aggrieved by the disastrous effects of monotheism, possessive materialism, and ecological maladaptation. Skip back. So, Chencho Dodge writes in that article, Nevertheless, it is said that Chang'e has become the next development, the next evolutionary step for the synergistic shamanic technology and entity we've come to know as ayahuasca, a unique synergistic hybridization of human and plant relationships, who most view as a feminine being that can be of great help to you in healing, learning, and personal growth. So this brings us to alchemy. Um, alchem, the word we get our word chemistry from. So within the context of the alchemical vocabulary, the psychedelic experience, as brought to us through plants long in the possession of Aboriginal people, appears to be the identical phenomena as alchemy, as McKenna wrote. Parallels between psychedelics and alchemy have been well drawn, uh, notably by Terence McKenna, but also Ralph Metzner, Rick Strassman, Alan Watts, Gordon Mawson, Allegro, and many others. Because of the transformative role that DMT can play in a user's consciousness, the molecule, like other psychedelics, most notably the mushroom, has been speculatively compared with the mythical philosopher's stone. This may well be informed by the uh, aforementioned author's interest in Jungian archetypal psychology, pre-enlightened hermeticism, Kabbalistic and Gnostic philosophy, and so forth. Uh, Terence McKenna's analogies with alchemy and tryptamine consciousness can certainly have said to be catalyzed by their brothers, the McKenna brothers' famed experiment at La Charrera. Uh, this is where they sought to pair the sonic and psychic frequencies of the harmless from smoked ayahuasca vine leaf with the psilocybe cubensis mushroom, with the intent of making contact with some entity uh, or perhaps the transcendental object at the end of time that Terence felt we were being pulled by. Uh, Georgia Gaia, whose 2015 study into Chang'e's transformative qualities through self-reports, is the only real academic research on Chang'e to date. Uh, she also drew this connection between the unique qualities of Chang'e and alchemy. Um, yeah, so this alchemical process appears to be magic. For its nature is inexplicable, yet its results are sharp and clear-cut. Chang'e's alchemy transforms perceptions radically and quickly, and its transmutative effects can be felt across all the mysterious mechanisms of a user's inner consciousness. Chang'e's alchemy depends from nature as nature depends from our collective conscious evolution. And who is the alchemist then? 
if not a mirror of nature itself. In this light, Chang'e is depicted as the latest discovery of a magical creative tool for hyperdimensional explorations, opening a new interesting chapter in the journey of psychedelic awareness. Now, the late Ralph Metzner also wrote, there is a strong interest in purification and healing, and discovering or making a tincture or elixir that will give health and longevity. There is a recognition of the sacredness, the animating spirit of all matter, and there is an integrated worldview which sees spirituality, religion, health and illness, human beings, the natural world and its elements as all interrelated in a totality. So there are some key concepts here associated with alchemy that I would like to draw your attention to as I feel they give us a really good glimpse into the very psychedelic nature of this ancient practice and philosophy. So first we have the Philosopher's Stone. Everyone's heard of the Harry Potter movie? Uh, the principal goal of alchemy was and is the production of the Lapis Philosophorum, the Philosopher's Stone. Orthopedia Newman points out that in numerous alchemical texts, it is stated that this coveted stone is not made is sorry made not of stone, not of bone, not of metal, coming not from the mineral kingdom and not from the animal kingdom. He deduces that the true philosopher's stone is to be found only within the vegetable kingdom, as a crystalline drug prepared from entheogenic plants such as acacia. And he references the frequent significance placed on the acacia within Freemasonry, who are considered the alleged knowledge keepers of alchemy. So the prima materia, or the prime matter, theoretically to the alchemically inclined Freemasons, the stone was none other than DMT, a veritable vegetable stone, a purified crystalline stone or salt that has been extracted, or to use alchemical terminology, produced from the acacia tree. The stone is then dissolved into a red liqueur, which is afterwards imbibed by the candidate for initiation. Solvate a coagula, a term essentially to mean to break down and reform, firstly dissolving, breaking down, limiting parts of us that hold us back. The dissolution of one's ordinary, everyday sense of reality into a state of flux. And then a coagulation or reforming out of which identity is healed, renewed, and thus transformed. As chaos magician David Lee notes, this is a chemistry of mind and material, and arguably the most apparent philosophy in the practice and study of psychedelic efficacy. So key to all this is transmutation, as generally the Hermetic and Gnostic interpretations use the transmutation of lead into gold as a metaphor or analogy for the process of internal alchemy or transmutation of the soul or psyche. So transformation is the action of changing or the state of being changed into another form, which can also describe the unique phenomenological experiences of Chang'e, but also the synergy that as a substance to me, equates to something more than the sum of its parts. It's more than just DMT and it's more than just the vine. They come together and there is something absolutely unique that is hard to pin as either one. So the elixir of life, the elixir of immortality. Uh, for one, the most likely psychoactive potion named Soma at the core of the Rig Veda traditions. Um, DMT explorers may well relate this notion, this concept of immortality, to experiences of timelessness and of a realm beyond this one in which the past, present and future coexist in a timeless stream of life beyond death, or consciousness beyond death. As above, so below. Um, in a secular context, the phrase can refer to the idea that the microcosm reflects the macrocosm. We see this through atoms and solar systems, for example or in a spiritual sense that earthly matters reflect the operation of forces on the etheric or astral plane. It also points to what we know about physiological, 
psychological and emotional health being connected to societal health. This is often experienced in the psychedelic state through the reflection of patterns, the resonance of fractal and dendritic networks at every level of mind and matter. So, most fascinating I find is the coincidentia oppositorum. The Chandra experience is certainly a place of coinciding opposites, or a paradox. Light and dark, pleasure and sorrow, love and fear, knowledge and uncertainty, chaos and order, familiarity and utter strangeness. As McKenna remarked, the alchemist had the wisdom to see that everything occurs in the presence of its opposite. It's done, it's not either or, it's both and. The point of this union of opposites, as was done in alchemy, is to not force the system to closure, but to try and leave the system open enough so that the differences can resonate and become complementary to each other rather than antithetical. And he went on to say that it is only within this union of opposites that does not strive for closure that we are going to find cultural sanity. This brings us to the magnum opus, the great work. Um, the alchemical process that refers to both chemical and metaphysical transformations by creating an interrelationship between mind and matter and self and world. There are some unique alchemical analogies with Chaga, and Georgia Gaia even observed the actual process of preparing and consuming the Chaga mixture resembles alchemy. The neo-shaman being a creative alchemist whose task it is to search for the proper herbal synergy that can allow communication with the spiritual realm and precipitate a healing ritual. So to expand on this is something I've been observing for quite a while now. There appears to be a number of striking resonances and parallels with the alchemical steps of the great work and the DMT extraction process. We have calcination, which is a process of heating and decomposing raw matter or breaking it down. This would be the freeze-thawing of the substance, the acacia or the mimosa. Second, we have dissolution, dissolving the ashes from this calcination stage in water or boiling the acacia or the mimosa in acidic solution. Thirdly is distillation, the boiling and condensation of the fermented solution to increase its purity. This could be also the reduction of the three boils of acacia into one. Then there's fermentation, a two-step process in which the unexpected mystic substance forms out of utter blackness as a yellow ferment, appearing like a golden wax. Now, through basification or raising the pH, this makes the solution black and acacia often yields a yellowish crystal or a goldy, wa golden waxy oil. Next comes separation, which is separating the substances to retrieve their basic constituents or essences. This would normally be our non-solvent pool. Uh, then conjunction, the recombination of the saved elements from separation into a new substance. This might be thought of as adding the collected solvent pools together, or the combination of DNT and harmless. And finally, coagulation, which is the precipitation or sublimation of the purified ferment, our DMT crystal. Precipitation would be the evaporation of the solvent. And sublimation also refers, refers to the process of vaporizing. And these processes have a number of metaphysical denotations due to the significance of number seven, there being seven steps and chakras and uh, star signs and so forth. Psychedelic gnosis, the key to the Chang'e experience, appears to be episodes of psychedelic gnosis, a subjective and experiential opening of the mind towards the inner knowledge of our divine nature, beyond science and rationality. The term psychedelic gnosis in this context refers to any transformation of consciousness possible in individuals or social groups, with gnosis meaning knowledge, representing the liminal space created by ecstatic experiences, induced by various techniques of shattering and reshaping identities. This type of knowing also functions as a kind of initiation or a revelation or a lifting of the veil 
of what lies beyond ordinary sensation. It's been described as an ecstatic reconnection with the unitary nature of being, a deeply subjective, experiential, and salvational form of knowledge that is strictly personal, non-verifiable, and incommunicable. A knowledge of the true nature of oneself and of the universe, which liberates the individual from domination. As Walter Hanegraaff writes in his research, the type of psychedelic transformation referred to here may occur as an intimate acute experience or a form-shaking permanent alteration. It is a spectrum of effect that has incalculable personal and social consequences. So, in her fieldwork, Georgia Gaia categorized the transformative qualities of Chang'e on three levels, personal, social, and spiritual. So, to quickly summarize, the first was a personal transformation or an awakening quality where significant self-transformations influence how individuals perceive and interpret the external world and their wider society, including a reshaping of personal habits, lifestyles, and belief. Chang'e was seen as a therapeutic tool used to connect with the spirit world, to increase awareness and well-being, and to connect with the divine, giving greater sense of purpose and direction in life. Uh, the purpose being one step of a gradual process towards an elevated intuition and individual freedom. Second, she noted a change in worldviews or a re-enchanting quality. Um, focused on interpersonal transformation and social relationships, she describes these experiences giving us an opportunity to completely dissolve false beliefs of powerlessness, limitation and unworthiness, and describes this process as social deprogramming. Many report Chang as being like a teacher, and her subjects describe the development of new worldviews that make them more conscious of social issues changing their way of living and trying to positively influence friends and acquaintances as an initial step towards social improvement. And thirdly, a transformed understanding of the realm of the supernatural, or a guidance quality. Um, she states, although difficult to articulate, these experiences recurrently provoke deep personal reflection and a re-evaluation of the user's epistemological paradigm. Um, Cheng users often affirm that the insights they gain from experiences they are used to get metaphysical and contingent guidance in everyday life. Um, it's been observed that Chang'e experiences are short-lived, but the time required for their interpretation and integration is consistently much longer. This often represents the starting point, though, of a bigger journey and the root of deeper subjective consciousness. Of course, personal interpretation is key when dealing with any entheogenic experience, and from this, two polarities seem to emerge. A disillusionment with the indulgences of contemporary Western society and an imaginative idealistic vision that can evolve a radical critical position towards mainstream society in general. Um, this, however, can also induce a sense of marginalization and estrangement uh, from family, friends, and others who simply can't relate. Uh, Georgie Guy notes that the Chang interpretations are influenced by the cultural context in which the user is embedded, and at the same time, they're capable of mysteriously transcending individuals' prior cultural frameworks. Many have compared the DMT and ayahuasca awakening and other psychedelics to the red pill and the matrix. Um, and I'd love to go deeper into that, but there's some really great resources out there that I can point people towards later. There, so deconditioning and community. The theme of deconditioning or the function of unlearning learned behaviors is part of the shamanic process. And this process of cultural self-reprogramming, as Georgia Guy described, of Chang'e transformations, represents a type of liberation, both from over-determining cultural conditions and overweening social institutions. 
Through this cultural reprogramming, the Changra experience presents several potential challenges to existing power structures and the consequent social justice issues that arise around, arise around them. In his study of Australian ayahuasca drinkers, Alex Guerin noted that the theme of cultural critique is a significant one, with ayahuasca providing opportunities that heal distress related to interpersonal and social life, and then inform types of cultural critique related to urbanisation, materialism, consumer capitalism, and environmental destruction, alongside cultural ideas of a sustainable, sacred, and healthy planet and human species. Georgie Guy concluded that the conscious use of Chang'e might play a central role in human collective evolution. In the context of a larger social evolution, Chang'e is seen as a tool through which two main goals could be accomplished. Firstly, it would induce desirable levels of suspicion and uncertainty directed towards mainstream media and culture. Secondly, it would contribute to the re-enchantment of daily life, enhancing the belief that there is something more than what we can perceive with our five senses. So, we have a pretty good feel for what the self is. The various philosophical approaches show us that the concept itself is rather slippery. Um, who we are, such that we feel the same person through time and in different contexts, or how we relate to the voice in our heads that we identify as the I, and the dialogue we have with that part that listens. Chris Letherby explored the notion that psychedelics respect authenticity in a unique way, by involving the person in a transformative process which is somewhat transparent, rational, and meaning-involved. DMT is so powerful and it unquestionably raises philosophical questions of self, the ontology of reality, and the hard problem of consciousness. But primarily, I think this could be reduced to what many refer to as ego death. Um, ego dissolution experiences reveal that the self model plays an important binding function in cognitive processing, but that the self does not exist. Is it then that those who experience a death of the self before death itself might become more selfless when it comes to others, finding a deeper purpose than merely self-help. Back. Uh, so McKenna, relating the self to society cultural ties back to the conjunctum oppositorum, we have a reconciliation of paradox, duality and unity. So how do we apply this perspective to cultural binaries in the sense that the personal is always political and we can come to see the ambiguity in life rather than socio-politically constructed dualities? So we may have challenges to establish hierarchies that set these dichotomies for us, such as self, other, us, them, male, female, right, wrong, good, evil. We may have challenges to identity, gender, race, and class, reshaping social imprinting and cultural narratives, and redefining markers of identity through countercultural nature and application of psychedelics. As Colin showed us earlier, the nurturing of plants can create a sense of home and belonging, through a meaning-making process of shared experience and the establishing of shared ideals and visions. Psychedelics can also give us more agency. Freed from conditioning, we see ourselves as having more power over what, we, over what happens to us than we may have previously been led to believe. That then leads us to feel more sovereignty, that psychedelics may enable us to see the sovereignty of our own beings as paramount, thus making it less acceptable for others to seek control over us. Is there such a thing as psychedelic values? Author of a book called Ayahuasca as a Social Change Agent, sorry, author of the book called Ayagoji, and his thesis was Ayahuasca as a Social Change Agent, Rowan Kaufman revealed that Ayahuasca has the potential to catalyze several antidotes to the values embedded in Western culture, of movement from Western hegemony towards self-determination, movement from individuality towards relationality, 
from anthropocentrism towards the natural world is sentient, away from consumerism and materialism, and from acceptance of these hegemonic institutions towards a critical criticality or rejection. Perhaps the most pressing concern, issue of concern and change in our society today is that of the environment. And my research from a few years ago found parallels with ayahuasca and the philosophy of deep ecology. The philosophy of deep ecology has in one sense become a perennial philosophy, representing the notion of direct experiential access to universal archetypal truths that transcend the boundaries of culture. It embodies a variety of traditions that embrace non-dualism, animism, pantheism, and holistic metaphysics. Psychedelic experiences can challenge our culturally constructed anthropocentric assumptions, separations, and illusory boundaries that arise from our society's values of self-interest, greed, waste, and exploitation. Such experiences help to undo these hierarchical binaries we come to know as human and non-human, self and other, spirit and matter, nature and culture, such that nature comes to be understood as a series of living subjects and not just as a range of utilitarian objects. Changa and other psychedelics can thus be just one lens and a range of tools through which we view ourselves as ecological beings. This helps us to understand that the dominant perception of our human species is somehow superior in the great chain of being is inherently flawed. So to the Gandhian quote, be the change that you wish to see in the world, is really a paraphrase of this. We but mirror the world. All the tendencies present in the outer world are to be found in the world of our body. If we could change ourselves, the tendencies in the world would also change. As a man changes his own nature, so does the attitude of the world change towards him. This is the divine mystery supreme. A wonderful thing it is and the source of our happiness. We need not wait to see what others do. So here Gandhi is telling us that personal and social transformations go hand in hand. But clearly there is no suggestion in his words that personal transformation is enough. However, it replaces complaining about and blaming others through a reflection of our own actions. It stirs us into taking action with the only thing in the world we have control over, ourselves. So this Gandhi quote is about pulling others to take part in the change rather than pushing or coercing them. We notice this in the psychedelic experience when we stop resisting and we allow the experience to just take us. We're often then liberated from the inner tension within. This type of organization has been called an adhocracy or an organizational design whose structure is highly flexible, loosely coupled and amenable to frequent change. These processes actually unfold all the time but we are conditioned not to see them. Dominant power structures keep us from recognizing self-organization and self-leadership. The idea being that when we create shared meaning and higher purpose together, people self-organize and action happens. This is held together by individuals' integrity and authenticity, such that when people are unsure about the direction of change, a trust in our better nature and learning from each other inevitably allows higher order hierarchies to fall away, in theory. By changing yourself first, you become an example for others to follow, motivating them by your transformations and your example of how it could be, rather than motivating them through fear or intimidation of how things ought to be or must be. So this inevitably leads to a wide-eyed idealism. Inevitably, out of the psychedelic experience, emerges not despair, not self-indulgence, but wide-eyed idealism. That's the inevitable product of any psychedelically-driven social process. So a few afterthoughts here is that this is not for everyone. There are different modalities for different folks to achieve the same results from other methods, not necessarily psychedelics. Um, 
there's there such thing as psychedelic privilege being embedded within mostly well-off uh, middle-class cultures? How do we use the power and access we have to psychedelics to lift others up? Through this, can we heal the sickness of Western capitalistic society? Is healing the sickness within the self just a metaphor for healing sickness in the world? After all, we are society. And how do we move beyond these existing and constraining modes of being that we're exposed to? There is an aim for the absence of divisive separation society. So how our internal world exists within the external world and how the external world exists within us is the key to an integral being or a wholeness of being or integrity. And the ability to envision new models of interaction is going to be key to move beyond mere critique towards actual construction of more egalitarian networks through an insight into the structure and mechanism of reality and thereby the human spirit. Do we wish to repeat the mistakes of the 1960s attitude of lamenting our dystopian present and doomed future and claiming that only through the mass use of psychedelics can we be saved? Even though it must be said, during that period, many great social justice movements came to prominence and indeed affected change. So I'd like to finally leave you with some quotes from Julian Palmer, the man who gave Changer its name and was instrumental in developing and spreading awareness of it. Uh, he wrote so much good stuff when I asked him to uh, make some points for this talk that yeah, I'll leave these with you. And the voice you just heard there was Jeff Baker, who is the head honcho at Sydney's chapter of the Australian Psychedelic Society. Uh, and before that, we heard Dr. Vince Polito earlier in the program speaking about uh, his research into microdosing LSD and how effective it might be. Uh, you can find more information about that, uh, all of those things, by uh, checking out the Australian Psychedelic Society, psychedelicsociety.org.au. You can find their YouTube channel as well with a few psychedelic videos on there, uh, youtube.com, and uh, search for Australian Psychedelic Society. Also, while you're at YouTube, and if you're interested in more psychedelic videos, the EGA YouTube channel uh, is a wealth of information from an Australian perspective, youtube.com forward slash entheotv. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. We will be updating uh, about 10 shows uh, shortly, so there'll be a whole bunch more podcasts coming through very soon, and check out everything that we've got at the website as well. A few things going on this week. Uh, Turning Point are hold holding their regular uh, talking point session this week on Wednesday at 1pm. Uh, it is Reinforcement Learning and Value-Based Decision-Making in Substance Use Disorders, presented by Dr. Gillian De Betty. Uh, it is on during the day on a Wednesday, but they are good sessions if you can make it along there. And I think Turning Point do record them. I'll find out when I'm there on Wednesday. Website is turningpoint.org.au if you want to find out more about that one. Uh, and then on Thursday... The Narrating Neighbourhood Project are holding a, uh, a session down in North Richmond near the uh, medically supervised injecting room, a community building uh, session. Uh, there'll be sausages uh, up for grabs and lots of storytelling, uh, people just getting out to, uh, to talk to each other, community storytelling, uh, and that will be on all afternoon. I think starts at 1pm and runs um, through until the evening. Uh, so do head down there, especially if you're, lo you're a local in the area, uh, if you're concerned about the medically supervised injecting room or if you're just interested in knowing more and, and really understanding the communities that are out there because that's one of the um, 
one of the one of the big obstacles at the moment is a lack of understanding. It's it's not that there's uh, we're not going to see drug use go away. We're not going to see drug problems go away. Uh, we we can find ways to better address these problems, but the the first thing that we need to do is is understand each other and to understand each other we need to talk to each other this has been a 3cr podcast you can hear in psychedelia live every sunday from 2 p.m head to 3cr.org.au for more